is God a person? If we think of God as a person, that might seem to mean that he thinks things over, does his best to figure out what to do, and hopefully doesn't mess up too often. After all, we're persons, and that's what it's like for us. So if God is a person, then presumably that's what it's like for him too. Well, obviously that's inadequate. Obviously we should specify that God is omniscient and omnipotent and so on. Since he's all-knowing, he can't make mistakes when figuring out what to do. Since he's all-powerful, he can't mess up once he's decided, and so forth. But even on this picture, something's not quite right. God is still being portrayed as an agent within the world, a super agent, but still an agent in much the same sense as we are. True, he's better than we are at dealing with reality, but he's still dealing with it, which means he's subordinated to it, which doesn't really sound like God. Also, inasmuch as he's dealing with it, he's dealing with us too, because we are part of it. This suggests that his power and our power are, at least potentially, in competition. He must decrease so that we might increase. If this is what it means to call God a person, then maybe we would do better to just ditch that idea and go for something very different. For example, maybe God is something impersonal, like the fundamental laws of physics or the fundamental forces of physics Presumably those don't have to deal with anyone or anything. On the contrary, everything and everyone deals with them. We just arrived at the idea that God isn't a person, but starting from a rather non-Christian way of thinking about God, traditional Christian theology has a different notion of God. It says not only that God is different from us, but also that he's different from us not by being higher up on the same scale. It's not that he's like us, only with the knob turned up to 11. It's much more radical than that. But starting from a Christian point of view, a view that sees God as radically other, will not give us an easy way to avoid the question of whether God is a person. In fact, if we aren't careful, it will take us out of the frying pan and into the fire. If God is utterly different from us in every way, then all the words we use might seem to be utterly inapplicable to him. God will turn out to be utterly unutterable. If we think like this, and if someone then asks whether God is a person, we might find that the best we can say is, I have no idea. We might even feel compelled to go farther and say, no, given what we know about personhood, God is not a person. So it turns out that while one reason for thinking that God is not a person starts from a non-Christian notion of God, another starts from the Christian notion of God. Of course, the Christian notion of God does, in fact, involve thinking of God as a person. And this talk, I'm going to explore how that can make sense. In other words, I'm going to explore how we can stick with the Christian idea of, uh, of a God Sorry, how we can stick with the Christian idea of a God who is very, very different and yet still think of this God as a person. I'll proceed in four steps. 
First, I'll talk about the basic notion of God in Christian theology. Second, I'll spell out why it's difficult to combine the idea of God as a person with the basic Christian notion of God. Third, I'll make some remarks about how we can succeed anyway. And fourth, I'll make some remarks about how this relates to the way we talk and think outside of technical philosophy and theology. Okay, so the Christian notion of God, why that creates problems for thinking of God as a person, how we can overcome these problems, and then what this has to do with the 99.9% of life that isn't technical philosophy and theology. In all of this, I will make use of some ideas found in Thomas Aquinas. I hope that won't shock you. After all, this talk is sponsored by the Thomistic Institute. But that's not the main reason I'm doing it that way. I happen to think that these ideas from Thomas Aquinas are quite helpful. And also, perhaps you've already read some Thomas Aquinas, which would make it easier for you to follow along. Anyway, these Thomistic ideas are not extremely idiosyncratic. They are held at least approximately by many, though not all, Christian thinkers. Aquinas is just a convenient way to get at them. Let me get started then by spelling out the basic Christian notion of God. Perhaps I should clarify that I want to set out the basic notion of God from the standpoint of metaphysical philosophy and theology. In the liturgy, for instance, what strikes us at first might be that God is a powerful person who cares for us and is reaching out to save us. That's 100% correct to say, but such a view of God presupposes certain ideas about God and how God relates to everything that is not God. And these ideas are, in a sense, the implicit foundation on which other, Christian, on which other ideas in Christianity are based. It's these more fundamental thoughts that I want to turn our attention to here. Perhaps you're familiar with the so-called five ways of Thomas Aquinas, five arguments he gives for the existence of God in his Summa Theologiae. Now, Aquinas scholars disagree on exactly how to interpret these arguments, and they also disagree on whether they all work or not. Perhaps some of the arguments have glitches in them, but none of that matters for us right now. What I want to focus on is only the general structure of these arguments and on what kind of picture of God they give us. In each of these arguments, Aquinas starts from some fact about the world. Things in the world are changing, or things in the world are getting caused, or things in the world exist, even though it was quite possible for them to not have existed, or things in the world come in rankings of more or less perfect, or things in the world act in a consistent way, and for a kind of good, that's five. In each argument, Aquinas tries to show that those facts about the world require the existence of something else, something that is very different from those facts. For instance, Aquinas starts from the obvious fact that things are changing, and he concludes that if things are changing, there must be some entity that causes them to change without itself getting changed by anything. This entity is the so-called unmoved mover. The other arguments are similar in structure. 
things in the world exist in a certain familiar way, but they couldn't exist in that familiar way unless there was something that existed not in that familiar way, but in a different and unfamiliar way. Therefore, there must exist something that exists in that different and unfamiliar way, something that is responsible for the things that exist in the familiar way. As I say, the details don't matter for our purposes here. What I want to focus on is the general pattern or structure of thought. The things that exist in our world are the way they are because something else is responsible for them being that way. And the thing that is responsible for their being that way is very different from them. To put it slightly differently, the things that exist in our world depend on something, and the, things, and the thing that they depend on is very different from them. If it wasn't different from them, then it would be dependent too. Things in our world are dependent, and ultimately they must be dependent on something that's independent. This being can be called the first being, because nothing comes before it. Nothing comes before it in time, but more importantly, nothing is more basic than it. It depends on nothing. It presupposes nothing. It doesn't have to deal with anything or contend with anything. It receives nothing. Instead, it is what other things depend on, what other things presuppose, what other things deal with, what other things receive from. Nothing is prior to it. Everything else is posterior to it. Notice, by the way, that Aquinas doesn't start with the idea of God and then go on to argue that God is the first being in this way. Instead, he starts with the world and goes on to argue that there must be a first being. And then he says, this first being is what people mean by the word God. I've already noted that I'm skipping over the details in the arguments. I'm also skipping ahead to include things that come after the arguments. For instance, I'm acting as if it's obvious that there's one such being. But Aquinas actually takes about 50 pages before he finally gets around to proving that there's only one God. Thinking about God is slow, painstaking work. We could go through such points in detail, but it would take all night. And in fact, it would take much longer than that. All right, let's gather up the crucial ideas. God is the first being in the sense that he is the being that receives nothing, that depends on nothing, and so forth. And this has a very important corollary. Nothing acts on God. Nothing changes God. Nothing actualizes any of God's potentialities. He's always already 100% actual. And it's not even that he's 100% actualized. He doesn't have any potentialities to actualize. He's just there. He just is. Think of how different we are. We didn't have to be. If our parents had never met, we would not exist. When we were first conceived, there wasn't much to us actually, although we did have a lot of potential. Potential to have a brain and a heart and arms and legs. Potential eventually to learn to speak. Potential to go to college and so forth. Over the years, through much help from the outside, a lot of those potentialities got actualized. Here we are, 
fairly well actualized. But we still have lots of potentialities. We could be playing volleyball right now, but we aren't. And if we wanted to start playing volleyball, we'd have to stop talking about God. Which means that we'd have to give up one actuality in favor of another. And I've not even mentioned all the help we constantly receive from the laws of physics, the atmospheric pressure that keeps us from blowing up, and so on. No matter how really fantastic we think we are, we are still, in fact, very needy and dependent beings. We tend to be proud of how much potential we have, but in truth, our potentiality is a measure of our non-actuality. That's why if the teacher tells you this paper has a lot of potential, it's not good. (laughs) We have potential because we aren't there yet, which means that we aren't there. But God is always already there, and he needed no help to get there, and in truth, he didn't get there. Because again, he always automatically and necessarily is there. Scripture scholars disagree about it, but this is one possible meaning of the mysterious thing that God says in Exodus 3, I am who I am. If this is what God is, the first being, and therefore a fully actual being, with no admixture of potentiality, then perhaps it won't be too hard to see why it's difficult to think of God as a person like us. To be a person is to be an individual being with a rational nature, a being who can think and act rationally. But for persons like us, thinking and acting rationally is all about actualizing potentialities. We grasp ideas, which means actualizing our potentiality to grasp them. We reason from one thing to another, which means actualizing our potentiality to think about the second thing, while perhaps also deactualizing our potentiality to think about the first thing. We decide to do things, which means starting from not having settled on what to do to later settling on it, and so forth. If this is what being a person is, and if God is fully actual all the time, then he can't be a person. This is what philosophical problems often look like. On the one hand, it seems to make sense to think something. For example, that God is a person. On the other hand, it seems to make sense to reject that same thing. And the way out, at least sometimes, is to realize that there's some mistake lurking in the background somewhere. A mistake that needs to be brought to light. We need to get some new ideas on the table. Ideas that will enable us to succeed in thinking of the Christian God as a personal God. So what I will propose is a certain Thomistic way of understanding language about God. I'll lay it out in three steps. First, I'll explain a three-way distinction between univocal, equivocal, and analogical uses of language. You may have heard this before. Second, I'll present a distinction between literal and metaphorical language. And third, I'll show how this enables us to talk and think about God. First, univocal, equivocal, analogical. Suppose I say that Socrates is human. Taken all by itself, this is not univocal, and it's not equivocal, and it's not analogical either. 
It's not any of these because they apply, those three apply only when we're using the same word more than once. But suppose instead I say that Socrates is human and that Plato is human. I just used the word human twice. And notice that I used it in exactly the same way. When I said that Plato was human, by human, I meant the same thing as I meant when I said that Socrates was human. That's a univocal use of the word human. Now suppose I say that there is a bird on the bank of the Providence River, and then I suppose, then suppose I say that there is a bird sitting on, on the Citizens Bank building on Westminster Street. I've used the word bank two times there, but I have used it in two completely different senses. Right? The bank of a river and a bank where you put your money. That's an equivocal use of the word bank. Okay, then. Suppose I say that the cat Rusty is healthy. And furthermore, suppose that I say that Purina cat chow is healthy. That's two different uses of the word healthy. But notice something interesting. They aren't exactly the same uses. When we say that Rusty is healthy... We mean that his physiological systems are all working really well, or something like that. But when we say that his food is healthy, we obviously don't mean that the food's physiological symptoms are all functioning well. And yet, these aren't totally unrelated uses of the word healthy either. There's some important connection between the healthiness of a cat and the healthiness of its food. Healthy food leads to a healthy cat. There's a lot more to say here, but for now, all we need to do is to notice that sometimes we can use a word in two different ways, two different ways that are related. When this happens, we have an analogous use of words. As you are probably starting to guess, the idea here is that when we call God a person, as well as calling ourselves persons, we are using the word neither univocally nor equivocally, but instead analogously. When applied to God, the word's meaning won't be exactly the same as when applied to us, but it won't be completely different either. It will be similar, but also different. Now let's move on to the second point, namely, the difference between literal and metaphorical uses of words. We call God intelligent, but we also call him a rock. A rock. Is calling God a rock just another example of analogous predication? Aquinas would say no, and for a very interesting reason. Analogous language is a subspecies of literal language. Univocal, equivocal, and analogous uses of language are all literal uses. God is literally intelligent, but for Aquinas anyway, God is not literally a rock. The reason is as follows. The notion of a rock automatically includes imperfection. Nothing could be a rock and yet contain all the fullness of being in the way that God does. Intelligence, by contrast, does not automatically include imperfection. Something can be intelligent without being imperfect. For that reason, we can apply the word intelligent to God literally, even if analogously. I'm not going to say more about it at the moment, but the difference between analogous predication and metaphorical predication is important, and I think that people 
often don't give it enough attention. Now we come to the third step. How do we talk about God? We have certain words like intelligent and powerful and so on. And since these words do not automatically include the notion of imperfection, they can be applied to God literally. But of course, we will not apply them to God in a way that is univocal with the way we apply them to ourselves. Because in the way we apply them to ourselves, they involve imperfection. In particular, they involve the passage from potentiality to actuality. We need then to eliminate all aspects of imperfection from the meanings of these words, and only then apply them to God. That's the strategy. Now let's take a closer look at how we could put it to use in thinking of God as a person. A person, again, is an individual thing with a rational nature, an individual that can think, will, and so on, Let's focus on thinking so we can have an example to work through in detail. For ordinary humans like us, thinking requires a number of things, of which I'll list only three. Passive reception of cognitive content from the world, judgment, reasoning. First, we get our notions of reality from reality itself. Starting in sensation, and then reflecting on it and on its inner image, imagination, we don't dream up ideas and then see whether they match the world. We receive the natures of things from the world into our own minds. Often imperfectly, it's true. We don't just have individual concepts, however. We also put them together in judgments, like dogs are warm-blooded, or snakes are not warm-blooded, and once we have judgments, we often go on to reason from judgment to judgment. From dogs are warm-blooded and warm-blooded animals can thrive in cold climates, we can infer dogs can thrive in cold climates. All of this requires passing from potentiality to actuality. All of it involves imperfection. Therefore, none of it can be found in God. When we say, then, that God has intelligence, we have to exclude all of this from what we mean by intelligence. We have to attribute to God something that really does count as intelligence, but that doesn't involve passive reception of natures from the outside, doesn't involve the formation of judgments, and doesn't involve reasoning from one judgment to another. How do we come to such an understanding of God's intelligence? First, by just doing it. Just say, God is intelligent, but not in a way that involves actualizing any potentialities. That's a good start. But it's not enough, I think, because it's too one-sidedly negative. We need more than just the word intelligent plus a bunch of negations. Not receiving ideas, not reasoning from one judgment to another, and so forth. We need to make sure there's enough positive content in there for the word intelligent to still mean something to us. So we have to say and mean things like this. God is aware of himself. He's aware of the world, and so on. He really has awareness and understanding, even if it's not like ours. 
Is that as far as we can go? Well, first, I think we should be open to the possibility that the answer is yes. If God is really the transcendent first being that Christians say he is, then it's silly to assume ahead of time that we can have a very thorough understanding of what he's like. That said, I think we can go farther, at least a little farther. We can do this by trying to find things within our own experience that are at least a bit like what God's knowledge needs to be like. Let me give two examples. First, I've said that we need to hold that God doesn't get knowledge of the world by receiving it from outside of himself. He doesn't know what the world is like by, so to speak, using a telescope to look down from heaven and check things out. But then, if you think about it, not all of our knowledge actually comes from the outside either. We know about our own actions from the inside. I know that I'm talking to you right now, and I know this not by observation, but instead just because I'm a rational agent, and rational agents, generally speaking, know which actions they are performing. Well, if God is the creator of all, then everything that exists apart from himself is the result of his creative action. And surely if we know what we do, then all the more does he know what he does. Therefore, it seems pretty reasonable to say that God can have knowledge about creation without receiving that knowledge from the outside. He knows about creation by knowing it as the result of his own creative activity. And the fact that there is something like this in our own experience means that we are able, however faintly, to have some positive content to what we say and think about God's awareness of his creation. Second, I've said that we need to hold that God does not engage in reasoning from one judgment to the next. Here's a way to think about that. And reflecting on music, I can think of a C minor chord. And in that one thought is contained the thought of C, the thought of E flat, and the thought of G. I don't really have to move from the thought of one note to the thought of another. Not if I have the overarching thought of C minor chord. So if we scale this up in a really huge way, then we can catch a glimpse of how God can know all things without moving from one thought to the next by knowing everything at once in one giant all-encompassing thought. Now, obviously, that's kind of bigger than just thinking about a C minor chord, but still, you can get a glimpse of it. Note further that when we say that God understands things without going through the steps that we go through, his not going through those steps doesn't mean that he fails to accomplish something that we can, call, to, can accomplish. That's not the right way to think about it. Instead, we should think of his knowledge as being better than ours, better in a way that allows him to do all at once something that we have to do step by step or in pieces. And again, we can find comparisons in our own experience. Beginners in music have trouble grasping chord structures all in one go. They actually do think of chords one note at a time. People who are good at math skip steps, as we say, 
It's not that they actually do go through all the steps only much faster than the non-math people. Rather, they see the path from point A to point B as really being just one step. For them, it is just one step because they're better. So I've tried to lay out in a bit of detail how we might say that God is intelligent without attributing to him the imperfections that are bound up with our own style of intelligence. In that way, I have laid out one aspect of what is involved in thinking about God as a person. For Aquinas, that aspect, rationality or intelligence, is really the most important one. Another, say free will, is based on rationality. So if you've solved the rationality problem, you've done most of the work of solving the free will problem, at least from Aquinas' point of view. What about emotions? Aren't they an important part of being a person? From Aquinas' point of view, although emotions are absolutely central to being a human person, it's a lot more complicated when it comes to God. Emotions involving potentiality and imperfection can be attributed to God only metaphorically. Anger, for example, involves the actualization of certain bodily feelings, so God cannot literally have anger. When Scripture attributes anger to God, this is only a metaphorical way of talking about the fact that God sometimes does something that is characteristic of an angry person, namely dealing out punishment. This is not me making, this is not my example. This is what Aquinas says. But think of love. If love means having certain physical feelings, then God doesn't have love in that sense because God doesn't have a body. If love means desiring to possess some good that you don't have, then God doesn't have love in that sense either because God lacks nothing. However, there are kinds of love that involve no imperfection. For example, delighting in good that you do possess and willing good for others. God does have love in senses like those. And in fact, his love is better than ours in virtue of the fact that it isn't needy. I just said that God doesn't have emotions insofar as that requires having a body. What about the incarnate Christ? Doesn't he have a body? Well, that's different. <laughs> All this time, I've been talking about divine persons insofar as they are only divine. But if, as Christians believe, there's a divine person who has not only a divine nature, but also a human nature as well, then things look different for that person. Christ, in his human nature, can have all kinds of emotions. We can get to Christ in the discussion if people want to. But it's not part of my main topic here, so I'll just drop it for now. I've tried to sketch out why there's a problem with thinking about God as a person. I've also given a first look at Aquinas' notion of analogical language and how he applies it to the case of language about God. Finally, I've tried to show how Aquinas' ideas of analogous language and how language can be applied to God can allow us to think about God as a person and talk about God as a person. He's a person, all right, but not just like us. In fact, he's very different. You might even say that he's more different than similar. 
But that doesn't mean that there's no similarity at all. And for that reason, there really is some content to our thought and language when we speak of God as a person. Now, I'd like to say something about the idea of God and the notion of personhood and how all that is related to the way things happen outside the world of technical philosophy and theology. In philosophy and theology, we try to make as much progress as we can in understanding God in ways that are literally true rather than metaphorically true. So when you're doing philosophy or theology or philosophically informed theology, that just means the good kind of theology, you won't want to say that God is a rock. Not really. You won't want to say that God has an arm, even a holy arm. Not really. Going further and more controversially, or anyway less obviously, you won't want to say that God gets angry. Not when you're doing strict theology. But strict theology isn't the only thing you can do. Think of astronomy. In astronomy, we don't actually say that the sun rises. Not really. Instead, we say that the earth rotates in such a way that the sun becomes visible once again. And yet, in everyday speech, we actually say the sun rises. We say it all the time. It would be ridiculous to try to prevent people from saying, the sun rises. Not every attempt to speak about the sun is an attempt to do astronomy. When people say the sun rises, there's something that they are trying to get across. Perhaps they haven't chosen the technically best way to say it, but it might still be the case that what they really mean to say is true. Similarly then, when someone says that God is angry, or that God is sad, perhaps what they are really trying to get at is something true, even if they haven't chosen the technically best way to say it. What I'm driving at is this. There's a certain way of thinking about God as a person that is, technically speaking, correct. And in technical theology, that's what we should say. But from this, it doesn't follow that the language of technical theology is the only legitimate language to use. I want to pursue this further along two tracks. First, there's the question of how one speaks with people who aren't philosophers and theologians, who aren't studying philosophy or theology, and who, generally speaking, just aren't in the philosophy and theology zone. Ordinary people, the kind of people who make the world go around. Is it a good idea when dealing with such people, always to insist on technically correct modes of speech. It seems to me that the example is no. Let me tell a story about this. It's an extreme story because it involves not ordinary adults, but children. But since they're my children, I'm going to tell the story. And also, extremes sometimes make things clearer. One of my kids, when she was about five years old or so, asked me, what does God look like? If I'd been a more experienced father at that time, I'd probably have said, well, we can't see God, but if we could see him, he would be very beautiful. That would have been a good answer. But no, I was in a philosopher mood, 
And so I said, well, God doesn't have a body, so he doesn't actually look like anything. After a pause, she said, you mean he's only got a head? (laughs) That she answered in this way demonstrated that my answer was completely inappropriate. It was not well calibrated to convey truth to her. What I said was true in some technical sense, but it led her farther from the truth. If she had wandered off, rather than giving that amusing reply, I'd not have known that I had misled her, and she would have been further, farther from God. Luckily, I could fix it, although I don't remember what I said. Adults aren't children, but even so, not everyone is a technical philosopher or theologian. If someone says, my child died and now God is sad, it will almost never be appropriate to say, well, actually, God is not sad. Because sadness is a passion that arises in response to an apprehended evil. And since evil never happens to God, he's never sad. In fact, this would basically be a stupid and wrong thing to say. Because the person you said it to would almost certainly get the wrong idea. For example, that person would somehow gather from what you said that God didn't really love him, which would be false. So my first point is that sometimes the technical truth is not helpful, at least not for everyone. Interestingly, it's scripture itself that makes this clear. The Bible does not talk in the language of technical theology. Generally speaking, it doesn't even come close. Aquinas says this himself. Here comes a big Aquinas quote for you now. God provides for all things in a way that is suitable to their nature, but it is natural for man to approach intelligible things through sensible things, since all our cognition takes its origin from the senses. Hence, it is appropriate for sacred scripture to teach us spiritual things by way of metaphors drawn from corporeal things. In addition, since sacred scripture is proposed generally to everyone, it is appropriate for spiritual things to be proposed by means of likenesses drawn from corporeal things in order that scripture might be grasped even by those who are so untutored as to be incapable of grasping what is intelligible in itself. There are two points here. The second point is that scripture uses a rather physical language to talk about God so that the message of salvation will be available to everyone, not just to people who are trained in philosophy and theology. Elsewhere, Aquinas makes it clear why this is important. Holiness is not a matter of how good an understanding you have of God, but a matter of how much love you have for God. But that's not the only point. That's the point there where if you're like a philosophy or theology person, you're thinking, oh yeah, that's for the little people, right? But let's go back to the first point that Aquinas makes. It's a point that applies to everybody. The first point is a deeper point. It's not just that some people are untrained in philosophy and theology. It's also that every human, even a super smart human like Thomas Aquinas, finds it natural to think about things in a way that begins with sensation. We find it natural because we are rational animals. And that means we are physical beings. 
even highly refined philosophers can't help but approach spiritual realities by way of physical things. Recall how, for Aquinas, arguments for God begin from our everyday experience of the physical world. That's not a coincidence. It's the way humans are. And that leads me to my final point. Everyone relies on metaphorical approaches to God, at least sometimes. As long as we remind ourselves from time to time that these metaphors are only metaphors, it's fine. In fact, I'll go so far as to say the following. In practice in our spiritual lives, we may find it best to swerve back and forth between rather strict ways of thinking about God and rather loose and metaphorical ways of thinking about him. For example, sometimes we need to focus on the need for closeness with God and intimacy with God. And at such times, we might find that more austere and quote-unquote correct approaches don't get the job done. At such times, we might find it better to resort to images of God that are rather anthropomorphic. We'll think of him as a shepherd, or we'll ask him to take us up in his arms But at other times, we'll realize that we've started getting too chummy with God. We've started thinking of him as our buddy, not as our judge and the maker of heaven and earth. When that happens, we'll need to remind ourselves of how very different he is from us and how far above us. Both of these are needed. It all depends. So in conclusion, while I'm very much in favor of technical theology and of doing technical theology in a technically correct way, I think we have to remember that technical theology isn't the only thing, nor is it the most important thing. Theology is good for for preventing us from falling into idolatrous notions of God, but whatever theology says, God is a person, and he does love us, and he does want us to draw close to him. That's the most important thing. Thank you.